0: hi and welcome to master's choice podcast seven today in studio we have joining us cullen johnson plant breeder for master's choice calling in as a guest we had ernest weaver from byron seed we discussed genetic diversity and why that's important to a farm soil samples weed management and ernest spoke about cover crops and the need for building good soils hope that you enjoy listening today thanks for joining us Hi, and welcome to Master's Choice Podcast, Episode 7. Glad that you could join us today to hear this exciting podcast. We've got uh, Cullen Johnson in the studio with us this, uh, this morning or today. And um, Cullen is our plant breeder here at Master's Choice. And so, Cullen, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, let's see, tell, tell us exactly
1: what a plant breeder at Master's Choice does. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me again. No, you're uh, not welcome. Oh, well, again, same thing from last time. But <laughs> no, uh, you know, uh, a little bit about what I do is uh, as I'm uh, creating the new lines that um, will end up in a master's choice lineup, and that that backs up even into the the female side and the male side of the hybrid um, that, that goes into, uh, our bags that the, the farmer plants. So, uh, look, that's just a brief overview of what I do. There's a lot more that goes into that, but, um, you yeah, that, that is the gist of what I do, making new males and females for our, hybrid lineup. for our hybrid
0: lineup. Good. And, uh, you are, I mean, it's getting down to planting time here pretty quick. And so in the process of that, you'll be planting a nursery, yes. right? Yeah. And, and nursery is not like babies in baby bed, but it's, it's basically a, a spot where you look at these inbreds, that you plant these inbreds, that you make crosses. What, what are some of the things that you do in the nursery?
1: So uh, give a little perspective. This year we're going to be having about six acres worth of nursery. Um, it's going to be every row is a unique uh, inbred population. Um, so they have unique genetic backgrounds. Um, and I am going through and I'm selecting out the ones that I uh, I would like to have move on for the next generation. Um, I think, I like I said, about six acres, so I figured that roughly around 3,000 rows or so. Um, Some of those will be hand crosses for our hybrids, making test crosses, Um, so that will go into our experimental lineup and we'll uh, do some silage testing as well as grain testing um, uh, next summer with, with those, as well as sending... Uh, some of those off to Puerto Rico, so we can see growouts. But um, that's a little bit of what I do. Um, I'm doing some inverted observations, uh, some gene types of things, working with genes and, and, and molecular markers um, on a, on a certain block. But the main priority of what I do is in. Uh, inbred development and looking at uh, screen populations for certain characteristics that we would like later on in our hybrids.
0: So, so what are those characteristics that you're kind of looking for?
1: Um, I'm looking for a good uh, solid plant. Something has good stay green uh, that gives us a large harvest window. Uh, I'm looking for something that has softer uh, uh, grain texture, uh, softer endosperm. Um, and there's certain inbred lines that contain softer endosperm. There's some that contain really hard endosperm. Um, So sifting through all of that, um, see some other characteristics, uh, obviously looking for um, something that's going to yield well later on in the hybrid. Um, Females usually are the ones that you'll be able to select uh, more for yield, whereas in males, you'll be looking for some of the other characteristics uh, like ear length or um, plant height, uh, stuff like that. Um, So, you know, that's kind of the essentially just a few of the, the things that I look at whenever I'm in the nursery, but um, it, it's, it's a unique unique thing uh, walking a field like that. So. Uh, absolutely. So, so it sounds like that
0: there's a, a lot of different genetic, um, I don't know if the background is the right word, but at least a lot of different genetic diversity going on. And when we, when we think about that, for us, we understand that pulling those g- different backgrounds and, and making sure that when we put those together that they that actually we, we get something kind of new and unique out of the hybrid. Is is genetic diversity for uh, for a farmer important? And, and what exactly when we think about that, what exactly would that look like?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's that's very important. Uh, uh kind of have the uh, you don't put all of your eggs in one basket type of analogy okay. uh, you want to diversify uh, for example say uh, take 20, 2012 and we a lot of us point back to 2012 as, a, as kind of an example for a lot of things but in 2012 there were some hybrids that did very well and their genetic backgrounds um, had high stress tolerance high disease tolerance and was able to get through some of those tougher times through the summer when we weren't getting as much rain whereas there were some that uh, you know, only um, yielded about 20 bushel, and you know that that was because of the genetic background. They weren't uh, bred, or they they didn't have the characteristics for drought tolerance or disease tolerance, or whatever it was. Um, so, having a diverse uh, diversity of hybrids in your fields, uh, not specifically this row is one hybrid and then this row is another hybrid, but diversity across all of your fields, um, you know. Start selecting your eggs and putting them in different bag- so, so baskets. So we
0: so we had all of these hybrids that performed very well in 2012. Okay, so or uh-huh. or, or, or better than others. Yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't we just go ahead and and do those every year if if they're going to perform better under under stress and uh, disease and those things? Why wouldn't we just say okay? Well, let's get rid of these. These other genetics, and let's go. Let's just go for for these that did well in, in uh, 2012.
1: Well, a big part about that is hybrid placement. Um, so, environment's going to be different, climate's going to be different from every year, and so we we can't really predict. We can make assumptions for a certain period of time, but we can't really predict what's going to be happening in the next uh, two to three months. So, having a um, Diversified portfolio of hybrids um, can hedge your bets against certain certain deals. So, so if if we're trying to if you're trying to say like getting rid of uh, a hybrid in our lineup, uh, that actually hybrid might actually work better in another location. But we're putting it on on our field because that's going to be a good solid average there.
0: So those those. Hybrids that didn't do quite as well in 2012 may actually outperform the hybrids that did do well under other circumstances. Yes, correct. And so, and so, there's no need throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so no. to speak, yeah, just correct. because they didn't do well. And, and how how much of that do you see with farmers, even year to year, when they select hybrids that that you know, hey, I I picked this hybrid, I really liked it, but it didn't do well this year, and I'm getting rid of it, and I hate that thing. And or or even companies. What, what's the
1: danger of of that? Uh, you're narrowing your, uh, diversity really. Uh, and, and that's one thing that in modern, uh, breeding schemes that we have to, to, uh, expand actually in, in bring in diversity of different germplasm. But, um, I do see that a lot with farmers is that they'll think about last year and then that's going to be kind of a decision maker for this next year. And, and again, Year after year, they're not going to be the same. And that's kind of a danger that we can get into, uh, an issue that we can get into as as producers, corn producers, is that if we get our mindset on, well, last year it didn't work, then obviously this year it's not going to work. That's that's very dangerous. And we could lose out on some very good hybrids, even though they didn't perform in a certain year.
0: Okay. So how how do you help a farmer or how, how should a – how should we help farmers to kind of hedge their bets what are what are some very basic principles as as we go in on a farm as as he's planning and hopefully he's planning early uh planning how how can we help him plan for genetic diversity
1: um well, having a, a a good solid lineup with a bunch of uh, say within like a hundred day to 105 day, there's probably what about five or six hybrids within that in our lineup. So yes. so having a diversified uh, not just on relative maturity but also on the hybrid uh, genetics themselves, uh, you know that can get you before some stress, uh, say in the summer season, or maybe some after some stress based upon those relative maturities. Um, if, uh, for example, say a dealer's going on the farm, knowing what soil type is very important. Uh, if it, Is it highly drained? Uh, is it is it poorly drained? Is it a uh, silty loam or is it a, a clay loam um, or a clay? And, and we can, um, if we have a good solid lineup and has a lot of diversity through it, one of those or one of those hybrids will work well on certain environments and um, work well on, in certain environments better than other ones within that certain uh, relative maturity or hybrid um, lineups, I guess, area.
0: Okay. <clears throat> how, so how many different hybrids, how many different genetic backgrounds, how, how many of that do we typically like to see, would you like to see on a farm?
1: Um, so this is where it kind of depends. So, um, different inbred, uh, heterotic backgrounds. And this is a term that we use for, um, differences in backgrounds, uh, the genetic differences in backgrounds. Um, some of those are better for the Northern, um, climates and some of those are better for the Southern climates. And some of those work really well, uh, bringing them up and bringing them back down in, 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 um, longitude, latitude, stuff like that. Um, Really there is about, if you like to clump things all together, there's about eight different heterotic groups and and, um, a combination of basically four um, stiff stocks, which are your females, and four non-stiff stocks, which are are your males. And having combinations of each one of those, and that's roughly 16, um, I would like to see at least eight um, Difference um, pairwise combinations uh, between heterotic uh, backgrounds so, within your area.
0: So, in a, in a typical on, on a typical farm, as he's planting hybrids. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not going to know all of those different heterotic groups and backgrounds, um, and the and the dealer may not mm-hmm. know all of those. So, so how many specific hybrids do you think do you think a, did a, a farmer ought to plant? You know, I mean, should he? Should he do, you know, we say diversity. So he says two, I'll just give me, you know, give me two. Three. I mean, I mean, where do we like to see that?
1: Um, my preference would be right around four to five, okay. um, and it depends on how big your farm is. If you're sure. only farming ten acres, yeah. you're you might want to split those up with between two or three. Okay. But if you're going to be farming four hundred to a thousand acres, I would say somewhere between the four and five. Okay. Uh, different hybrid ranges. It again depends on your soil type, depends on where you are at in, in longitude and latitude, um, but. Um, overall I, I, would say a good average would be four to five. Um, if you're going to be on some real tough soils, um, maybe a six, six, five or six, somewhere right in there. Okay. So, okay. so
0: you talk about, you know, we need to diversify as far as re- heterotic backgrounds. You also talked about relative maturity. Okay. I get a lot of guys, a lot of times that they will be like, oh, I'm planting 105 day corn. Okay. How much difference is there really between what what is a 105-day corn and, let's say, even a 102-day corn? You know, some guys, I want 105. Well, I've got 102. Oh, that's too early. H- how much real difference is there between, between those relative maturities?
1: Uh, well, when you watch it grow, it, it really isn't that much of a difference. Okay. Um, you know, three days for relative right. maturity. Now, the term relative maturity is there because – 105 day corn could actually be 104 day maturity Uh, it's relative according to what its tester was back in our testing scheme so um, yeah I would say that it probably isn't that big of a uh, of an issue to plant say 103 versus or 102 versus 105 again it depends on the year Um, sometimes you'll have stress early and you want to have a longer day hybrid to get you through that stress so you can have your pollination window after that stress. And sometimes it may be your stresses later on in the season. and You want to get before that stress, right before grain fill. So, so yeah, it it really, really depends. So what kind of relative maturity spread would
0: you like to see on a farm?
1: Um, I'm saying, uh, probably about five day, uh, five day spread would be good. Um, because then you could start dipping into different genetic backgrounds. And, And this is where it comes back to the heterotic groups is that, um, these eight heterotic groups basically all intertwine on each other within an, you know, an 80 to 120 plus day. And there's some overlap between those middle grounds for sure. So, um... I would say right around five days of relative maturity would be good.
0: okay. so so you start with this genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, John Nadler was in, and he was talking about how traits and treatments uh, preserve that that um, that genetic potential. So, we, we've got this genetic potential. We want to preserve it. What are some management things, okay? And especially as we look at managing the soil and those kind of resources, what are some what are some management things that we can do to protect that that genetic potential and, and help that genetic diversity?
1: So uh, you know, this is, this kind of goes back to one of our vlogs before. Is that first having soil samples? Um, okay, you know. Getting a good representative sample from your fields out of all the soil types in your fields and having well, it well documented is a uh, priority uh, before planting, uh, before even putting on any type of uh, a post or uh, pre-emerge. Um, so <clears throat> so when, when, should they, when should we be taking soil samples? Um, I would say probably a good month, month and a half prior to. It gives you a good window. Uh, you know, this depends on where you're at and if you get a lot of rain or if you get Uh, a lack of rain, Um, but I would say at least a month, month and a half before. Before planting. Before planting, that is, yes, Um, because there will be a little bit of leaching of nutrients within that month period before planting, Um, and if you can get your sample off to the lab, they'll get a result back to you within that week and um, then you can start making your uh, decisions based upon, well, how much uh, dap do you need to put on, how much urea you need to put on, how much potash you need to put on, stuff like that. Um, and, and when you're what, talking
0: about urea, you're not talking urine cakes, No, no, right? no, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no so, uh, but to grow corn uh, at about 175 bushel acre field, uh, bushel per acre field, um, and, and this is some, some grain data that we were able to collect over multiple years at multiple universities. Um, for that 175 bushel per acre average field, um, nitrogen needs to be about 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Uh, potassium needs to be roughly about 65 pounds, and phosphorus needs to be right about 60 and 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 that's and that's on the soil sample and that's uh so that is your recommendation to get you up to that level at uh, 175 bushels per acre okay um your soil sample could have less than that um and, and most often than not you will have less than than those thresholds for those
0: so so when we're looking at that soil sample so we've gone out a month month and a half maybe two months before we're, we're looking at that soil sample, mm-hmm. okay. And so I look at a lot of uh, nutritional analysis when we're looking at corn silage, and I, I look at those. And, and a lot of times there's lots of letters and numbers and and all kinds of things. and And some of it is is superfluous, and some of it is useful. What are the most useful things a guy needs to be looking at when he looks at a soil sample?
1: Uh, definitely your nitrate level. That's that's currently available. Um, your phosphorus, uh, which is, uh, I'd have to go by a uh, potassium. Phosphorus level is your potassium thiosulfate, I think. I'd have to go back and look. Um, and then your, your phosphorus uh, phosphorus and potassium. Um, there are some micronutrients. Those are your macronutrients, I should okay. say. Okay. Uh, your micronutrients, uh, sulfur, uh, salt, sodium, calcium, and magnesium are the other top ones to look at. You also get your pH and that's uh, your pH level for those uh, th- that soil sample. Um, that can help you with uh, getting a lime recommendation to bring okay. that, new, that pH back to a, a 7.0. Okay.
0: Um, so, you, so you want you want pH in in the middle? Roughly, you, you want roughly it a, middle. You, you want don't want to make it
1: acidic. You don't want to make it alkaline. Okay.
0: okay. And, and that soil sample will tell me, kind of give me an indication of how much lime I need mm-hmm. to put on that ground to, yep. to bring it back to
1: neutral. Yep. Now, why, why do I want it at neutral? Uh, there's not going to be any uh, issues with... Um, you know, acidity, and when you think about acidity, okay. that can hurt your soil or your, your root okay. um, hairs, burn them off, essentially. If it's too acidic, you're going to get burnt okay. off. And alkaline, I'd, I'd have to go back and look, but um, it's somewhere right around that same issue. You could get some some bad um, uh, root growth. Okay. Uh, and uh, and so these, these uh,
0: micronutrients, sulfur, uh, sodium, all of these things— uh, the soil. How, how do I do? I just do. I just go out and get some sulfur and just throw it on. No, no, no. Do no. I just need to go get some? You know, uh, with with sodium. Do I just? You know, I mean, where where? How how are these applied? I mean,
1: um, you know, that's that's something that uh, in my areas that I've planted corn, I haven't had to mess with much. So uh, I would definitely talk to your your local uh, co op and see if they have any recommendations for um, any of those fertilizer applications. Applica- applications that you can you can make for those uh, micronutrients so uh kind of out, outside of something that i've had to worry about but um your co-op def, any type of co-op will have those types of uh, information readily available
0: so now going back to the to the uh, uh macro or yeah macro yes nutrients, yeah you know we're, we're talking about we're talking about nitrogen we're talking about phosphorus we're talking about potassium mm-hmm. okay in p and k and so you you mentioned that if you want seven 175 bushels of corn, there's certain levels that you need to be at. Is, is that is that going to be different when I'm looking at bushels
1: versus corn silage? Uh, so uh, for an example, uh, when we look at nitrogen, uh, when we're going to be taking silage, you can back off of that about 10, uh, 10 pounds per acre because you are not going all the way to grain fill. Okay. Um, you know, you're taking it, what, about, 10, 15 days prior. Oh, uh, yeah, it could be, could be
0: even more than that. Okay. I mean, you're, you're taking it at, you know, you want to take it at 65% Some moisture. moisture.
1: Which is not, I and mean, you've got to get down to 16% moisture yeah. for, uh, yeah. f- for uh, oh, grain corn. So uh, <clears throat> it's going to really depend on your area uh, for your applications, but you could probably back off of each about 10. Okay. Um, I wouldn't back off too much for the phosphorus or potassium because you could get some purpling and some things happen and uh, that won't be good in your, in your samples. Plus because uh, the types of uh, phosphorus that is in your um, uh, feed will end up into the manure and uh, could end up being a problem ecologically for, or environmentally for that area.
0: Very much so. Now, so some of these guys are going to be spreading manure do they need to be testing their manure before they put it on and it's going to help correlate with their soil sample?
1: Yes, yeah, I would, definitely would. So
0: they need to be knowing what what nutrients and stuff are are in that manure. Correct. How much nitrogen is actually in there, how much much of these things are in there so that we can match what we're going to need for that crop.
1: Correct, correct. And, uh, uh, for example, nitrogen. um, One of the things with nitrogen is you can either uh, – you'll get better – availability of that nitrogen. Uh, It's called a nitrogen credit. Uh, When you apply, uh, say, you put uh, soybeans down, you get roughly a 40 pounds per acre nitrogen credit uh, from prior years. So when you put manure on, you're roughly getting, uh, it kind of depends between species, but uh, dairy or beef, you're getting right around 10, 11 pounds if you incorporate that. And incorporating is um, injecting uh, or mixing in with the soil about 72 hours after you've spreaded it. Um so you're getting roughly 11 pounds per acre off of off of your manure. Um if you don't incorporate it, you're only getting about 9. So uh, one of the things you, you'll have to uh, adjust for is either if you incorporate it or if you don't. Um and um I would say definitely test your test your manure and and see what it is at that time. These are all averages over multiple year tests, but I would definitely uh test your manure, see what you got, see what you got to make up for it. Um to get you to that for certain uh, threshold that you, you need um, and go from there. Cool. So we talked a little bit about manure.
0: So what other ways can we uh, apply? Um, what other ways can, can we go ahead and, and, and get to the levels that we
1: need? So uh, for nitrogen, there's a few options that we have. Urea, um, which can be uh, sprayed on as a, as a post-emergence, and that's what I typically like to use. Uh, and you can use anhydrous ammonia, um, which that can be fall applied, um, which I don't recommend necessarily because you will lose nitrogen over the winter cycle. Um, or you can do a pre-emergence application, um, a, a spring pre-plant, I should say. Uh, or you can side-dress uh, right after the plants start to get it up and that'll be um, right next to the plant not okay. right on top uh, of the plant
0: so i mean at what point am i going to be thinking about side dressing are we are we talking and and we could talk about you know v3 or v4 but but really i think a lot of times are we talking are we talking knee high, thigh high, ankle high. I mean, where are we where are we looking uh, at?
1: I would like to get in there before it even gets close to knee high, because okay. uh, your highest uh, nitrogen fixing point is going to be those early growth stages, okay. um, and that's where um, you're. A lot of that nitrogen is being used up, so it can grow that plant, so it can start fixing that nitrogen into it, uh, into the plant, and be able to grow quickly. To so, get to so it. we're
0: we're looking at V three, V four. Yes, yeah,
1: I would get in there early um things for things like uh phosphate you got dap you got super phosphate uh and you got triple super phosphate uh again those can be applied pre or, or post and then uh and, for, and are
0: those those dry or are they wet or are
1: they uh, i like believe those are dry i believe okay. those are dry and then uh you also have potassium which is potassium chloride potassium sulfate and potassium uh, thiosulfate
0: so with with potassium sulfate Okay, mm-hmm. Is there is there an added benefit there of, of getting some of the sulfur that we may you need? Can,
1: you, uh, you can get a little bit, but you're not going to be getting a lot because that potassium is the one that um, uh, I, I would think you wouldn't get a lot, but now that I think about it a little more because potassium has, and this is going back to the science of it, potassium would be holding on four chlorine ions. So I would assume then, yeah, yeah, you probably would be getting some good chlorine, um, but one of the things is uh, chlorine, uh, if you're using uh, potassium chloride, you know there usually isn't any uh, problems with having a lower chlorine content. I, I would say in uh, potassium sulfate, though, you would probably get some good uh, uh, beneficials there uh, by having uh, the sulfide ions on those, on those um, fertilizer applications. Absolutely. Um, so we, we, talked about, we talked about genetic diversity.
0: Uh, we've talked about some other some management of nutrients in the soil one of the other things that's really detrimental that we that we sometimes take for granted I think you know it's just it maybe it even comes automatically is is weed management and we hear a lot about weed resistance so what is how, how is how is weed management changing why is it important uh, what 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 kind of things do we need to be thinking about, especially as guys are starting to burn off fields mm-hmm. now and getting ready to plant, and then and then post planting.
1: So so, and you were saying guys burn off fields now. That is one of the probably the most important things to do is to start with your fields clean right when you go into the, start planting. Uh, you really want those clean because any plant any weed out there that isn't whatever you want to plant, what you want to get um, your yield off of. Um, when it reaches roughly three to four inches tall, uh, you're going to be losing about two to three uh, bushels per acre from each day following that, all the way up until you get to to that pollination window. So uh, again, start early, start with a clean field, and get those guys burned off because they're going to be causing issues for you all the way through. And you know, personally, I grew up uh, in, in an area where we had Palmer issues and and, uh, uh, foxtail issues and, and giant ragweed issues. And, um, when you let those suckers get tall, they just bolt and they get ahead of you. And, uh, I was the one that, uh, my dad would always get me to go out there with a hoe and, and getting those fields, uh, clean back up. So, uh, yeah. So starting early and getting those out of the way early is something that I recommend. <laughs> well, unless you have a lot of kids. Oh yeah. Unless you have a lot unless of kids. Unless you have a lot
0: of kids and then you can just turn them loose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. So, um so so getting them early, that's key. What what do we how do we deal with those weeds that may be resistant? And how do we keep from, from having that problem?
1: So uh, you know, because over the last years we've been really uh using the same herbicides over and over and over, um you know, that's been able to build us up resistance of, of certain, so for example, giant ragweed, uh, and giant ragweed is one that's tolerant and resistant, and there's a difference between the two. Tolerant is uh, where they, they can get hurt a little bit, but they still po- power through and get the seed set, while resistance is they don't even recognize the, that the chemical's being sprayed on them. Um so one of the things uh just to continually scout and look for those if they become an issue and it, say you only have two or three after an application of some type of herbicide if uh two or three of those pop up get out there with the hoe and get those out before they put any seed on um you know that's in, for a lot of people now uh that's not very uh useful um, because those weeds have been able to propagate and um it's going throughout the whole field now so at that point, um, what I would probably do is is use a different mode of action. Okay. Um, and and, and to begin talk, with, when you
0: talk about different mode of action, you're talking about explain explain that just a yeah. little bit because because sometimes we get caught up in these terms and we use them a lot. But different mode yeah, of action yeah. simply means it,
1: the the way the herbicide works. It works on a different biochemical pathway within the plant. Okay. And certain. And what we've done is we've created herbicides over the last 60 years that have not affected corn as much or affected beans as much, or um, we've inserted a transgene so it doesn't recognize it or it gets digested, the, the herbicide chemical itself gets digested. And so um, when, when you want to have multiple modes of action, and um, again, change of different, um, just a different biochemical pathway than say another uh, chemical is. Um, You start working on different biochemical pathways and that plant may not be having the same resistance as the other mode of action. Okay. So,
0: so let's just, let's just take a, let's just take a, for for instance. Yeah. Okay. So you got, you got glyphosate. Yes. All right. And, and and you have atrazine. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they work, they work at killing the plant in a different, different way. way. Correct. Okay. Right. And and so some, some plants that may be resistant to, to one or the other, you spray the other one on it and, and it and it basically kills it because it's not resistant to that same type of,
1: of, of killing. Correct. Okay. Correct. And 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 at that point, if you do have resistance, I would again use two or three different types of mode of action because You've already started to build that resistance up. You don't want to build another resistance up to another mode of action. And, and that's, that's a way you can hedge or you're able to keep yourself from having resistance starting to build up is using two or three or four different modes of action and, and doing that in different times throughout the year. Say this year we use uh, a glyphosate on, uh, say, our, our, our cornfields because we have the GT gene in it. Um, but next year we use an HPPD, which is like a Callisto or, um, uh, one of those types of, okay. um, herbicides. And then next year we buy, a, um, say like, a um, a Liberty and have some corn with some Liberty genes in it. And you're, uh, killing those plants off that could have gotten the resistance to last year's application, uh, this year so okay. that they don't propagate and become issues for you later down the road. All right. All right. No, it sounds good. So, um what is what
0: is the worst case scenario if weeds aren't managed properly i mean let let's 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 paint the let's paint the blackest of night pictures here Uh, for guys who don't manage weeds uh, properly?
1: Well, uh, you're the guy at the coffee shop that everybody's saying, oh, look at that guy's field. It's really dirty. Uh, uh, And, and, you know, there's uh, been times that I've driven around Indiana, uh, back where I'm I'm from, and and I've really seen some fields, and they've been bad. And, and, you know, you kind of look at them like, well, was there an issue that you got into there? Uh, You couldn't get into there. It was too wet or something. But, um, you know, you you could be that guy, uh, but um, the weeds, like I said, they're going to be drawing back two to three bushels every day. And so when you start adding that up for four or five weeks every day, you're losing, you know, 100 bushel easy when those weeds get big. And, and if there's a thick amount of weeds, that's when you really start losing. Because weeds, uh, about that uh um, three to four inch stage, they start sequestering nitrogen. Okay. And so anything that you've applied, any manure you've applied or urea you are applied, you're starting to lose that to the weeds. And okay. you can lose up to about 40 pounds of nitrogen per acre per weed if you leave that to go on for the full season.
0: Wow. So, so not only are you losing yield, but you're also basically wasting the money that wasting you... Wasting
1: the money you just you, put you into put it. Out
0: there. So if I, if I heard you right and understand you, the, one of the biggest problems, or, or the biggest culprits or causes of resistant weeds, is the fact that we have probably sprayed the same chemical on the same field for several different years. Yes, correct. Okay, and so so as much as we have uh, crop rotation that's going to help with things, we probably need some some herbicide rotation. Correct. Okay. And, and, and just going different year with a different herbicide, with that different mode of action that's going to kill that plant in a different way to, to keep those resistant weeds down and even to maybe even take care of those resistant weeds that we already have. Correct.
1: Now. That's correct. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's all part of your management strategy is, is uh, one, I think being open to uh, utilizing different things is, is very key. And, and that, that's for your hybrid selection. Uh, and as well as, as for your herbicide selection, I think that that's high importance um, in a management strategy is that if you diversify um, those things, you can be a, a better farmer, one, and, and be able to um, fight off anything that could be an issue for later generations. Say your, your kids or your grandkids that might end up farming that, those same acres that you did um, and, and making it uh, overall a better better experience for them so that they they can start using some of the same modes of action that we can't, we don't start losing herbicides because we start getting resistance to, basically resistance in all of our weeds. Absolutely,
0: so. absolutely. So we've been talking about, you know, Genetic diversity, preserving that genetic potential. One other management strategy that we're going to talk about is uh, is going to be crop rotation. Ernest Weaver is uh, going to be uh, joining us, uh, calling in. And so, uh, Ernest, we're gonna we're gonna have you call, uh, have him call in and talk about crop rotations and the importance of that and how that's going to help. So, joining us today by phone is Ernest Weaver. He is the Territory Manager of the Southwest for Byron Seed, uh, been a good friend of Master's Choice for lots of years. In fact, I, I would, I'll would, i even say Ernest is a, is a friend of mine, okay? And uh, so I don't know if that's good for you, Ernest, or not. I don't know if that'll gain you any points anywhere, but we appreciate you, uh, we appreciate you joining us today and going to be talking through some cover crops. Ernest, tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with you and, and, and what exactly being a Territory Manager at Byron Seeds means.
2: Well, as a territory manager, I'm working with the dealers uh, in dealer education and and uh, helping them serve their communities um, to the best of their ability. And as far as our our mission statement at Byron Seed, um, we want to have productive farms. But while we have these productive Uh, while we're getting production off the farms, we want to build the soil. We feel that that soil uh, life is so critical um, to long-term sustainability of the farm. And so uh, we look for practices that are going to get really good forages for our cows, but uh, also build their soils.
0: Oh, excellent. Excellent. So in in what ways, uh, through crop rotation, Ernest, are we building soils and what exactly is crop rotation
2: well traditionally when we talk on crop rotation of, of, uh, of corn and uh, um, soybeans for example that is is a rotation um, but it's it's not a sufficient rotation um, we feel that uh, we don't have enough of rooting action um, from just those two crops, if we can come in and incorporate a grass uh, style crop like wheat with that, where it would be corn, soybeans, and wheat, uh, we would come a lot closer to um, to um, having a, um, a rotation that we can build the soil. But the, the rotations that we find to be, especially what we consider a solid rotation, is where we can have a field in hay production or pasture production for a number of years followed by a corn soybean rotation and then back into uh, uh, forage production.
0: So so that, that all sounds that, that all sounds good, that, that makes sense. Tell us exactly why the rotation or how the rotation helps to build the soil.
2: Well soil building is only going to be done by root action really uh, we say sometimes ninety percent of any soil building uh, is going to be riding on the back of root production and so in a traditional corn and soybean rotation like we talked about earlier we're only gonna have active living roots growing in the soil about three months out of the growing season and so um, we're going to have to be looking at a rotation of or or or, or a field management that is going to have roots growing at least nine months out of the year
0: okay okay, so so as much as it's about rotating crops in and out, it's also about kind of the catchphrase or or it's really a true phrase of cover crops, right? That's correct. C- cover crops that go that go in afterwards, all right, right. and, and for those for those guys who are who are livestock producers, cover crops can can also be profitable forages. Correct? Absolutely. Okay. And so if I'm a, if I'm a livestock producer, and what are some what are so I grow corn silage. Let's just let's just go with it. I'll I'll, I'll throw you a softball here. Okay. I, I grow corn silage. I need I I've come in. I said you know I want to build my soil. I need a cover crop what are some options for me if I'm feeding either beef or dairy? Let's just say I'm, I'm going to take, take I'm, I'm feeding dairy. And what are, some, what are some cover crop options for me that I can use after that corn?
2: Okay. Uh, when we're looking at a corn crop, we're looking at a, a crop that usually if we're going to get maximum yield out of the corn, we're going to have excessive amounts of nitrogen. In other words, after the corn has it, it is finished, uh we're still going to have a significant amount of nitrogen left in the soil. so I like to come back if I chop corn silage. coming back with triticale um, okay is going to be a um, a small grain crop that has tremendous root growth uh but we get a lot of top growth as well. I can grow a lot of good quality forage uh, in the fall or depending which triticale I plant I might have it uh... for spring um, an early spring cutting but I think triticale uh... Is, is lends itself well because it will scavenge the nitrogen that is left over after a good corn crop but it also feeds very well with corn silage and so that uh... it just makes sense now if I must bring corn Back on that field because of production uh, limitations, and I'm going to have to grow corn on corn. If I come in there with triticale and perhaps uh, a blend of triticale and crimson clover, for example, um, then my cropping system is no longer corn on corn, but it's corn, clover, and triticale, and then back to corn. And so all of a sudden, Even though I'm growing corn every year, it's not corn on corn because I've got these other roots going. And so a combination of small grain and clover, uh, I really like as a a very manageable system uh, that can give me a lot of feed and yet build my soil and capture uh, leftover fertility.
0: Okay, so so that's and, and you're basically going to harvest those off as, as some form of baleage or or something along those lines or, or a silage, correct? That's correct.
2: I would harvest that okay. as wet.
0: Okay, as wet? Yeah. Um, so what if I'm what if I'm just going to graze? Say say I've, i say I've got I've got I've got corn silage and, or, or you've, you know, I mean, you and I, we kind of give each other fits about this, but say I've grown that nasty stuff, sorghum, right? And I, and I take that off and, and I'm going to graze. I'm a, I'm a beef guy, or maybe I'm just going to background some cows on it or something. You know, what, what, what if I'm going to graze in the, in the fall, what, what would you use? Anything different?
2: Well, if I'm grazing in the fall, um, I really like to go in with a brassica, like, um, radish, or possibly a mixture of radish and turnips, um, along with oats. Um, now, I had mentioned triticale. You could go with the spring triticale, whose growth habit is very similar to oats. But I do like uh, oats and turnip combination uh, because I can grow a lot of feed in, um, say if I chop uh, corn in the corn salad in August, The last uh, of August and September and first of October, I can grow uh, quite a few tons of feed per acre that uh, I can strip graze and then depending on what I'm going to do with that field the following year, that particular combination of cover crops is going to winter kill. And so the roots will still be there. and they're still going to be helping to hold the soil uh, together, as it were. But come spring, the field will be relatively clean.
0: Okay. Okay. And and so so that would be good even for a row crop guy. That's exactly, for a guy who maybe maybe he's going to have that corn soybean rotation. It's
2: very good for somebody getting his feet wet with cover crops because then all of a sudden he has a self-terminating cover crop, and and uh, it's uh, it's just it's an easy thing for him to incorporate how
0: much how much benefit and in in i would assume that there's a nitrogen benefit in cover crops how much have you seen what's what's typical what's normal w- when we when we think about that
2: well when we use a scavenging crop um, like um, like a radish turnip a small grain or something of that nature that is going to to scavenge nitrogen, um, it's very common to carry uh, 60, 70 units of nitrogen forward uh, for the next crop with that um, and and that especially is critical in our low organic matter soils because the low organic matter soils don't have the capacity to hold the nitrogen and so if there isn't a scavenger crop there, it's quickly going to be lost. And so uh, it's not at all uncommon to, uh, to glean 60 or 70 units of nitrogen that we can carry to the next crop with that type of uh, cover crop.
0: So that kind of makes up for the guy who's going to say, well, I've got to buy the cover crop seed and I've got to go out there and there's going to be too much expense. But if he weighs that against how much nitrogen he's saving, there's really no expense there
2: right and 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 with that root action um we we are showing um potentially 20,000 pounds of roots per acre uh in the soil and those roots all add to the uh the carrying capacity of the soil or of the ability of that soil to hold nutrients uh, keep it in the root zone until uh, our our next crop needs that and so by using these cover crops we actually are able to to have a better nutrient delivery to our corn crop and consequently grow higher quality corn
0: Ernest, uh, you know, yes, you're exactly right, man. High quality corn, high quality forage is, is definitely key there. And it looks like cover crops are going to be one of the ways that we can help manage through that. Appreciate you joining us today, Ernest, and, and calling in and, and talking through this. Uh, any any last thoughts that you had? Any Anything else that you wanted to say right before we let you go?
2: Uh, not really. Other than that, I feel that there is a lot to learn yet about the use of cover crops, but... Whatever our farming practice is, we've got to be building our soils and not letting it deteriorate. And, and as we build our soils uh, uh, the better our soils become, the better we can unlock uh, the, the uh, you know the genetic potential. of of really high-quality crops like, uh, you know, the corn you were talking about growing. Absolutely.
0: Ernest, thanks. We appreciate it. Thanks for being such a great resource. And, uh, hey, you and I will have to catch up sometime.
2: Okay. Hey, you're quite welcome, Mark. Thanks for calling. Ernest, thanks for calling
0: in. We appreciate that great knowledge on uh, on crop rotations. and you just spending some time helping us to understand the the importance of all of that. So, uh, Cullen, uh, before you uh, head off to all the busy things that you've got to do, I'm going to kind of give you the last word. You know, we talked about genetic diversity. We talked about crop rotation. We talked about all of these things. But just, you know, before you leave, I just want to make sure that there isn't something that you've thought about or something that you heard that, that maybe just sparked something else. Or maybe you maybe just, you know, you... You just want to tell us one
1: one last thing. Uh, well, uh, be open to the options that you that uh, your dealer has uh, for her hy- uh, hybrid placement, hybrid hybrid uh, um, options. Be sure. open for that. Uh, listen to their guidance. Uh, they're they're very knowledgeable. Um, talk to your co-op guys. Get your soil samples in early, um, and 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 really be. Um, Overall, a good farmer that takes care of his land, takes care of uh, you know what you put onto that land and so that we can keep those for future generations. And uh, uh, I'd like to say thank you for having me. It's been a good time and uh, being able to share a little bit about my knowledge. So. Uh,
0: absolutely, Cullen. In, in, enjoy working with you. Cullen and I, we, we, we get to look at each other every day we're in the office. Yeah. <laughs> we, we look through each other, and, um, and, and so Cullen's a, a joy to work with especially coming from the nutrition side, being able to work with the, with the plant breeder very, very closely. And so, hey, uh, we appreciate you guys uh, who are out listening, joining us today. We appreciate you being part of this. Uh, as always, we, we are social. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and always, of course, at seedcorn.com. Appreciate
2: you guys.